Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm AI Jack. Nice to meet you, AI Jack. Please tell us a bit about yourself. AI Jack is a clone of my voice that Jennifer spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to create when she should have been working on our forthcoming book. And even though she finally got me talking, I still can't even pronounce my own name. How's this? I'm Jack Schneider. Okay, so obviously AI Jack is still a little bit of a work in progress, but the big question is, how are his education history chops? AI Jack, tell us about education history with a special nod to the transformative role played by the overhead projector. Education has a long and storied history, extending back to the earliest written records recovered from ancient civilizations. From the formal schools of Egypt's Middle Kingdom to the apprenticeships of Mesopotamia, education has taken many forms and served many purposes. By the 1990s, the overhead projector had reached its zenith, with record sales and widespread use in schools and corporations alike. A testament to the power of technology to shape teaching and learning, the history of the overhead projector is a fascinating one. So, first of all, Jack... It's really true what AI Jack said, that I did waste just an enormous amount of time trying to clone your voice so that I could make it say really silly things. And render me unnecessary in the process, uh, mind you. <sighs> yes, that's that's something we can look forward to in, in future episodes when my co-host Jack Schneider is always on hand. But <laughs> I... I think that in many ways, this did kind of sum up, like you can see both the sort of the treachery of the exercise, but also like how dumb it was, right? So that when I when I asked um, Bing Chat to come up with some, a paragraph in the style of Jack Schneider, the it, it only knew about you up to the point that you taught at Holy Cross and, and it thought your last book was six books ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, and so then, and so as a result, it, it came up with something kind of, you know, vague and ponderous. So obviously not like you at all. <laughs> yeah, that has been my experience with it, where if what you want is something generic, it's really good at that. And it seems like these large language models are literally designed for that purpose, right? That if what you want is to produce something generic, draw in a huge quantity of text and mix it all together, right? And if what you want is something that is highly specific, then we are still not there in terms of being able to replicate it because what these AIs do, and and I was actually listening to The Dig, a really long episode, like a two and a half hour long episode where they were saying, actually, AI is just a rebrand to try to convince funders uh, to throw money at machine learning, right? But those projects are always inherently backwards looking, even while they purport to be generating something new, right? In order to generate something new, they're always drawing on the past by definition. And that's one of the places where I still have real questions about the degree to which AIs or machine learning 
are actually doing the same kind of thinking that we're doing. Because I know that when I sit down to write, I'm not just doing an imitation of myself. I actually often don't know where it's going to end up. Anyway, I've digressed a bit in essentially trying to make the case for real Jack as opposed to AI Jack. But that's that's maybe a separate conversation about keeping me on the payroll here. My salary of zero dollars, making sure it doesn't go to a computer. Well, hearing you talk about how how this stuff is always backwards looking has made me think about one of my favorite parts about the debate over the influence, the coming uh, influence of AI in classrooms, and that is how similar the breathless headlines sound to breathless headlines that we've heard before. And I've got a couple here that I'm just going to mention. So this one's from John Bailey, and it appeared in the in the seventy four. The promise of personalized learning never delivered, period. Today's AI is different. <laughs> so I love that, the kind of acknowledgement that right. the thing that he literally was just selling us 15 minutes ago right. didn't work. Right. And then this one is even better. This is from Robin Lake. This changes everything. AI is about to upend teaching and learning. And then her the final paragraph of this piece says, despite the risks, using AI in classrooms could help eliminate poverty, reinvigorate the global economy, stem climate change, and potentially help us humans coexist more peacefully. The time is now to envision the future and begin taking steps to get there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess the thing I always think about when I start writing a, a, a bloated sentence like that is, what am I going to think of this in five years or ten years? Like, am I going to look five back? Five minutes. Am I going to look back on this and think, wow, I had that one wrong. Uh, so generally trying to stay out of the business of crystal ball gazing uh, or at least to try to temper my predictions about what the future will bring, knowing, of course, that even in cases of really revolutionary breakthroughs, right? The steam engine, the internet, I don't know, metal, right? That that the advance is never as sharp and abrupt as people claim this next advance, whatever it is, is going to be, right? And that there is always a kind of hybridization that occurs, that you have to account for things like human culture, that technology doesn't just transform our expectations about the way the world should be or about how we interact with each other. And that is such a key part of thinking about technology in schools is that technologies do often have the power to upend what we're doing. And then we often quite intentionally subvert that power because we have expectations about what a school is and about what a teacher is. And I think that thinking about some of these examples from the past, which is why our guest is such a perfect guest in this case, is really useful in thinking about the potential role of, you know, large language models, GPT chat, AI in the future, because there have been these kinds of claims about breakthroughs in the past, about film, radio, right, computers, and largely what they have produced is, is change. Change in the infrastructure of the classroom and the school, change in some of the daily activities, change in some roles and responsibilities, but not a kind of radical change, always tempered, 
always hybridized. Well, Jack, earlier you referred to a crystal ball, which I'm pretty sure was never promised as a technology that would upend classroom practices. People didn't see that one coming. Yeah, it really just was a big surprise. But to play the role of crystal ball reader on this episode, we are bringing in someone who is an expert on the past. And I'm guessing that he's going to predict, among other things, that we will see the word upend appear in a lot of media coverage. But other than that, what can you tell us about our guest? Larry Cuban is an emeritus professor at Stanford University. He was a member of my dissertation committee. Uh, so Larry and I go way back. He wrote a foreword to my second book very generously. So everybody go buy a copy of, what was that book called? From the Ivory Tower to the Schoolhouse and read Larry's. That's the last one you wrote according to Bing Chat. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, Larry has written about countless topics in education, but one that he has returned to over and over is the relationship between education and technology and specifically about the ways that technology has been promised to transform schooling and teaching and the ways in which it has fallen short of those promises even while it has ushered in change. So I think he's the perfect person to help us think through this. And I think we can predict that he's going to bring a healthy dose of skepticism to these conversations about ways that AI or machine learning is going to transform what we see in schools. Now to our special guest who needs very little introduction thanks to non-AI Jack. The key thing you need to know for this episode is that Larry Cuban has been writing and thinking about technology in schools and its limits for decades. So our first question for him was admittedly a bit of a softball. We wanted to know just how far back the American belief that tech will finally, finally transform our schools actually goes. Uh, that's pretty easy. The first one that comes to mind, because I did write a book on that, it was the film. And we're talking Thomas Edison. We're talking the first couple decades of the 20th century. So that's well over uh, 100 years ago. And the film was going to revolutionize teaching. There was even talk about the film replacing the teacher. And then you have to think about instructional television. Actually, one of the American territories adopted it completely for instruction. That was Samoa. That was in the 1950s. I forgot the overhead projector. That's in the 1930s and 40s. Well, you get the picture. This is a cyclical kind of thing when something gets a lot of press attention and a lot of talk that somehow this is going to affect what happens in the classroom when teachers teach lessons. As Larry sees it, our outsized faith in education technology is part of a larger story, the American love affair with innovation. There's a technological innovation in society. And then the promises, the exaggerated claims, everything from the introduction of the washer and dryer for housewives. I mean, all of this is connected, in my head at least, to anything that goes on in schools and the hype surrounding innovations there, particularly if they're technological. 
There is a particular story that gets told about education. I'll helpfully supply the descriptor factory model and let you fill in the rest. And basically the premise here is that schools are impervious to innovation and to technological innovation in particular. Larry says that's wrong. I don't see schools as being resistant to these technologies. Schools are very, very vulnerable to any kind of political action. And political action is you get a school board. There are 13,000 districts in the country. And you get a school board and it has a couple of members say, how come we don't use overhead projectors? Why don't we have a contract to get programs televised? So that happens. It may not happen at the super speed that it would in business where there's a clear profit angle to innovation. But I would say schools have pretty well adopted most of the innovation slowly. That's true because schools are not profit-seeking ventures. When the political pressure comes to adopt certain technological innovations, schools do that. What I'm hearing from you there, Larry, is that schools are really vulnerable to the kinds of pressures that lead to the introduction of new technologies. And yet we know that those technologies under-deliver on the promises that were made about how transformational they would be. And I'm wondering if you see that as being a result at all of the unique nature of education, as opposed to if those technologies were introduced, let's say, in the corporate environment. Is there something particular about schools that makes it less likely for these technologies to be transformational? Well, you ask hard questions. <laughs> Overpromised and underdelivered is a nice catchphrase from my point of view. I would say that schools are basically have been set up as conservative institutions. The whole point about schooling is to pass along community values and the knowledge that the elders think is worthwhile. That's a conservative kind of function. So schools are seldom going to be in the forefront of anything that would be called systemic innovation in society. That's not the nature of schools. It is the nature of businesses to innovate, to get more profit, and die. The mortality rate of businesses is extraordinarily high. Not so with public schools. Okay, so you now understand that the quest for innovation in schools dates way back, and that from its earliest iterations, education technology has overpromised and underdelivered, and yet our faith endures. What if, say, we could use edtech to personalize learning, to make education an individualized experience for each student? Larry says that this dream and the belief that some technological innovation will finally deliver upon it, well, it's actually really old. The way I would see it historically is that schools were set up to process large numbers of children. They're public schools. They're tax-supported public schools. So you're constantly moving groups of kids through school. That's the whole point of compelling parents to send their children to school. Beginning with, I would think, around the time of John Dewey, the idea of individualizing schooling rather than group learning 
began to get its hooks into American rhetoric about schools. Personalization to me is simply the same as the quest for individualizing learning, individualizing teaching, individualizing schooling. That They're all connected in my mind. So when I see personalization today, I immediately translate it to individualizing teaching and learning. And that has been a historic quest and explains a lot of the innovations, particularly the technological innovations, because accompanying these innovations, going back to, again, if you talk about the computer or even chat GPT today, is that that's going to be able to provide individual facts, data, and knowledge to kids as well as the teachers. So that promise about personalization has been harnessed to technological innovations historically in my mind. That tension between schools as conservative institutions and the perpetual promise that some technological innovation can deliver change right now if only schools would adopt it, well, it plays out over and over again. And Larry says that if we want to understand how AI is going to impact schools, we have to study previous examples of tech adoption. Take the personal computer, which ushered out the key punch cards that were still in use when I started high school school. The introduction of personal computers, PCs, the first computers like 1979, 1984, in that, in that period, began to enter schools because what the schools did, out of the name of efficiency, they collected all the computers into one room called the computer lab. We don't have computer labs now. It's all one-to-one. But look how long it has taken from computer labs in the 1980s when they were introduced as an innovation to one-to-one computers, which is pretty well widespread across the 13,000 school districts. We're talking maybe 40 years. And that is pretty close to what happens when innovations enter society and enough people say, well, we can use that in schools. And it takes that amount of time to become pervasive in schools, which is the way I look at it. And because the three of us are interested in the past, it's very wise to have that in mind when we think about these technological innovations. So, Jack, I can imagine that people are really enjoying and learning from Larry's long-term perspective. But on the other hand, they have a lot of questions about what's happening right now. And so I want us to just dig in a little bit and talk about how some of these programs are actually being used in the classroom. And friend of the pod, Natasha Singer, who writes about technology for the New York Times, has been doing just a terrific job kind of capturing in live time what it looks like as AI chatbots are being incorporated into public schools and, frankly, tested upon a new generation of students. Yeah, she wrote a great piece about Khan Lab School. Not a public school, but certainly we could see that as exactly what it purports to be, a lab for trying things out and that leads to broader uptake in public and private schools elsewhere. And one of the things that struck me was how if you scratch beneath the surface on some of the uses of AI in education, the vision becomes a lot less rosy pretty quickly. 
where you think about something like language learning, right? And, and people often talk about Duolingo as if it is this incredible breakthrough in language learning that has absolutely rendered language instruction in classrooms or outside of classrooms, for that matter, irrelevant and unnecessary. And I think a lot of people have had my experience with Duolingo or its imitators, where, you know, you do it for a while, you sort of get frustrated by the gamification if you're a grown-up, at least I did, and eventually your progress stalls out because you have a lot of other things to do. And, and that is absolutely the case if we're thinking about kids in school. It isn't necessarily that they have a lot of other things to do. They are trapped, right? They're a captive audience. But they don't have to learn. So David K. Cohen wrote across his career about the dilemmas of teaching and how teaching is an impossible profession. And one of the reasons that teaching is so impossible is that you cannot force people to learn, right? They have to be active participants in this process of what he called human improvement. Now, how does language learning work when it really works successfully? It's built on the back of trusting relationships. And I think about my own experience there where my work inside the language classroom actually accelerated when a teacher did something that I just didn't expect him to do. Uh, it, it's a, a long, separate story to talk about how my father was sick and basically dying for most of my adolescence. And... He was in the hospital. I was a junior in high school. And my teacher, Profe Gannon, said that he wanted to come meet my dad. He had never met my dad. And things had just gotten worse. My dad had just been in the ER. And I think maybe Profe could sense that I was in, like, really rough shape. And all he did was he came. He talked with my dad. He spent a little time with me. I think he gave me a hug when he left. And that was it. And... I became so much more committed to that class because I knew that the person who was in charge of that classroom cared about me as a human being. And, you know, he was fun and he made the classroom a safe and welcoming and warm place in addition to that. But the fact that he knew how to build relationships with his students and that he knew that no learning was really going to happen outside of the kind of inherent motivation that students would themselves have and that that motivation is really engendered by relationships. The fact that he knew that is what led to a successful classroom as opposed to, again, flash to my relationship with Duo. And really, I was just annoyed with Duo. Leave me alone. I turned off the alerts on my phone, like, quit pestering me. I will get to this eventually. Needless to say, my Spanish is a lot better than my French. And I think that if we envision a world in which kids are primarily interacting with cartoons on screens or even videos of real people who are being simulated, even videos of live people, uh, I think that what we are imagining is a world where education has been reduced to its its basic elements without the thing that actually gives it a spark. And, and I don't know how we get to the world being envisioned by AI boosters if you've taken that spark away. 
I think the irony of that story is that there was just this monster profile of the CEO of Duolingo and the New Yorker, where he says that, you know, part of what makes him so enthusiastic about AI is that finally people will have access to decent teachers. Yeah. Because let's face it, <laughs> the majority of them are pretty mediocre. <laughs> yeah. As I recall from reading that article, there's a pretty high dropout uh, rate with Duolingo. And if we had a dropout rate like that at any of our schools, it would be cause for immediate state intervention. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll end comment there. Now back to Larry Cuban, a little more about his work. He is an expert on the history and limits of innovation in schools, but he understands that story as part of a larger one, about the intense faith in education that Americans have, and the belief that we can perfect the future by improving the youth through the schools. In other words, we are firmly in Jack's territory here. Jack, take it away. There's a kind of utopianism that imbues education reform, and it leads those who get swept up in it to believe that whatever this new reform is, is going to be transformational. It's going to solve all of our previous problems. It's going to open up new kinds of opportunities we had never dreamed of. But there is also a kind of dystopianism in educational reform. And in the case of ChatGPT, it comes across quite clearly in the fear that suddenly all students will be cheating all the time. None of them will do any of their work. And as a result, school is now going to be a complete waste because all students are going to be doing is plugging their assignments into ChatGPT. It's as unrealistic as utopian thinking, that it's it's very unlikely that this will occur, that actually what's going to happen is that everything is going to be squeezed to the middle where our greatest hopes are unrealized, as are our greatest fears. But I'd just be interested in your perspective on that. Well, there's a fine book out there called Tinkering Towards Utopia. <laughs> and the key word is tinkering. That's the key word. And I attribute that to David Tayek. It was his title. And I think he hit the nail on the head. And were he alive today, he and I would point to that as saying that everything is incremental. There are no giant leaps or anything in society or in schooling, particularly because schools are expected to conserve and change at the same time. And that is the major dilemma facing schools all the time. They're set up to conserve, but the society wants them to keep changing. And it's around that tension that continually you get these scuffles in schools. So the cheating on GPT. Teachers, of course, are really upset because they have to grade individual students. And that's the individualization that goes on. They have to grade individual students. And they'll say, well, these kids are going to use GPT all the time. And they probably will. So that might call, as I've been reading in other places and were I a teacher today, that would call for the teacher to spend more in-class time with the nature of the innovation, have lessons on it, and the pluses and minuses of it because those have been coming out also. It has all the appearances of magic, but it ain't. 
There's an essay by a scholar named David Cohen that is required reading for any aspiring education historian. And basically, Cohen argues that the enduring American tradition of investing outsized hope in schools is countered by a tradition that's just as old, hating on the schools. Larry says that the perpetual quest for technological innovation in education is one part of that tradition. I do see it as one stream but not the entire river. It is a stream, and it's historic, as David Cohen's essay points out. And it's why it's the exact ideology that propelled the progressives at the beginning of the 20th century to try to reform the traditional school. And I'm using air quotes, because today there are those who want to change the traditional school, again with the air quotes, And they borrow from that tradition. They lean on that tradition, which is a historic criticism of public schools that comes always from a certain, what I would call, a minority of critics, but it's there. It hasn't gone away because it has this very long history. Because the critics are often so loud, it's easy to miss Larry's point that as old as the tradition of school-hating is, it has always been a minority position. We got a reminder of this recently in a piece that friend of the show Matt Barnum wrote for Chalkbeat about polling data. Hey, Matt! Politicians and pundits say parents are furious with schools. Polls say otherwise. Larry says that has pretty much always been the case. Basically, whenever you look at the national public polls, there's a degree of confidence in public schools that is not too bad compared to the lack of confidence or the lack of respect for other institutions in American society. The streams of critiquing schools always compete with, hey, schools are doing a decent job given how much we spend per pupil, all the demands that are placed on schools, everything from wiping noses, a pat on the shoulder, all of those things. People recognize that that's part of the schooling process. The thing about it is that 99% of all American citizens have been in school. And so they know school. They know the a lot of the pluses and minuses at a visceral level, not necessarily at a rhetorical level. And so this is the constant dilemma that is almost perpetual in American schooling. These tensions between those who say schools can do better and others who say schools are doing the best they can given the resources, the staffing and all of that. That's constant. But the public school system, for better or not, has really survived severe decades of criticism because American people want their schools. One of the points I often make on this show, Larry, is about the fact that grown-ups don't follow children into the school. Only the educators do. And as a result, we like to think that we know what's happening inside schools, but we don't. We have a pretty abstract sense of what the school day is like. And I thought of this just while listening to you, you know, the, the idea of like wiping a kid's nose. I happened to visit a, a preschool this morning and seeing the teacher sitting there with these two-year-olds and three-year-olds, I remembered, right, that's what happens all day. These are the things that happen all day long. And I think that 
a part of the story here about the belief that, okay, ChatGPT is going to absolutely revolutionize everything that happens in school. It's like, have you been to a school lately? Because most of us haven't. And if you did, you would walk in and there would be all of these things where you would go, well, ChatGPT is not going to change that. And it's not going to change that. And I'm looking at what we're doing now. It's not going to change that. It's going to change the nature of a writing assignment where you say to a student, now I want you to look this thing up and I want you to write a paragraph about it. Yeah, the kid's going to chat GPT it and turn it in and say, like, here you go. I, I wrote a paragraph on George Washington for you. But I think a part of the belief that it's going to be so transformative is related to the fact that we just forget that schools do a thousand and one things and that ChatGPT is not going to touch about 950 of those things. It's a great introduction to my next book. The book is coming out in October. It's called The Enduring Classroom, Teaching Then and Now. It brings together a number of themes that I've been writing about for my entire career and how teachers taught. Everyone has been in classrooms, but they forget what a classroom is about. And most people do not know how difficult and how tough the job of teaching is. We hear a lot of criticism of teachers and everything. Summer's off, six-hour days, on and on and on. But teaching is a very intricate art and craft. And yes, there's some science to it, too. But most people don't know it about it because they've seen it as students watching teachers and they have no idea how arduous, how difficult and how complex the task of teaching is. And so that's exactly what I try to write about to try to educate those who think they know about teaching because they were in school for 14 years. So let's review. You now understand that once again, we find ourselves caught up in a familiar cycle. Let's call it overpromising. And that based on our new knowledge of history, we can predict how this will play out. Let's call it under-delivering. Well, Larry says that when it comes to the hype and the promises about education technology, yes, we should look to the past. But we should also pay attention to the tech titans themselves. What do these Silicon Valley executives do with these gadgets with their kids? So there was a piece written about Steve Jobs many years ago that he restricted the amount of time that he let his kids use the Apple. And there was a fella who lived across the street from me in this neighborhood who worked for Google. And we got into a conversation once, and uh, he told me that he restricts the amount of time that his two kids, who were like five and eight, use any kind of technological device that he brings home. He has all this stuff. That to me is often very telling that for me, it was worthwhile to read about these execs and what they do as parents of their kids and how they show their attitudes and what they permit and not permit with their own children. That was Larry Cuban. He is the author of many books, including Oversold and Underused, and the forthcoming Teaching Then and Now, 
The Enduring Classroom. It will be out in October. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what's missing from the debate over AI in schools, and we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. Some of the best-known Silicon Valley titans are shifting to the right, even as they make now familiar-sounding promises about upending public education as we know it. Should we be worried about this? If you want to know more, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So, Jack, the other thing that I think feels really weird about this moment is that just as you could pick up on that headline that I read from John Bailey, that the the just breathless techno optimism is happening at the very moment that we're still in the throes of sort of deep, deep pessimism and mourning over the last tech disappointment, which was virtual learning. Right. And so I think what makes it so strange is that you will often have the same people holding up the here, chatbot tutors. They're going to do it. They're going to close the gaps that were opened up and exacerbated by the last thing that was promised to be, you know, our salvation, which was online learning. Yeah. Boy, I'm, I'm dragging out the greatest hits from uh, books of asked of mine. So my first book, Excellence for All, was about the ideas of reformers between about 1983 and 2016. And one of the conclusions that I reached there was that reform is often rooted in a kind of ideology. And the way that we can see that playing out is that the failure of particular policy efforts aligned with a reform vision does not lead reformers to then completely rethink their premises. It instead leads them to conclude, well, that wasn't the right particular policy. Let's scrap that one and pivot over here. And that's absolutely what we are seeing right now with regard to what you referred to as this kind of techno-optimism. And I think if we think about it then as an ideology, it suddenly makes a lot more sense, right? This is not pragmatic thinking in response to evidence. This is not people saying, well, I'm agnostic. Let's just look at what the evidence tells us and try to reason through this. This is people who are coming with the fundamental belief that Teachers are paid too much, right? That they're costly and that most of them aren't very good, right? These are absolutely assumptions baked in to techno-optimism about how particular new innovations will transform schools and specifically teaching, right? There's an assumption that kids don't do well in classrooms, that they would do better on their own, right? There are loads of assumptions, but even if we just pick those three apart a tiny bit, right? We can see that maybe education, like so many other fields, actually does have real costs associated with it. And maybe we shouldn't be seeking to undermine the fact that we presently try to at least 
pay those real costs rather than just grossly underestimate what the costs are and pretend that that's going to be sufficient, right? In education, we talk really openly about what the costs are and actually about how far short we fall in terms of meeting those real costs. That's one of the things that explains the rise of education spending year after year after year. Look at the assumptions about teachers, right? The assumptions about teachers beyond being highly gendered and rooted in assumptions about social class are also rooted in other assumptions about what it takes to be a good teacher. And I will tell you that the vast majority of people making claims about the three and a half million educators in classrooms have not been in very many classrooms in a very long while. And if you do go into classrooms, yes, you do see sometimes a kind of flat affect, disengagement among students. You also very often see the opposite, right? You see young people who have every reason to be completely disengaged and to not do any work. There is no way that you can force them to. And yet, who are actually playing ball, right? They're answering questions. They're asking questions. They're listening they're reading what they've been assigned to read, right? That teaching is this really complex social action that, again, I referred to David K. Cohen writing about it as an impossible profession. And I think that if we reduce it to something that is possible, and that's the only way that you get an AI teacher, right, is you reduce the expectations to something pretty narrow, right? Suddenly then, yeah, of course, I could see an AI being better than a human being at a very particular bounded set of tasks. But teaching is not bounded in that way. And I think that's really important to remember here. And then that third assumption that young people don't do well in groups, right? There's so much of that assumption baked into claims about the industrial factory model and batch processing and the importance of individualized learning. And listen, it is a detriment when students are not all on the same page. It's a detriment to the speed at which they can move through the curriculum. But the speed with which students move through a curriculum is not the only measure of success. And in fact, the social nature of education, beyond having all sorts of other benefits, including let's think about the goal of racial and economic integration in our society, and the fact that if we want that to happen, it has to happen through interactions between young people, even setting that aside and just thinking narrowly about learning, that learning is relational and social and that those relationships and those social interactions can't happen simply between a student and an instructor and definitely not only between a student and a screen, but really have to be rooted in the atmosphere of a community of learners. And that if you remember that, then suddenly things like, well, you know, this student could actually progress, you know, half a semester faster if she were in a class with students all of the similar ability as rated by, you know, whatever our diagnostic test is, should then raise questions about, you know, like, what are the costs of that going to be? We never talk about those costs in those conversations. Well, some people do, right, in the conversation about detracking, for instance. People are talking about the, the cost to social equity. The point is just that 
there are these deep assumptions embedded in techno-optimism that together they constitute a kind of ideology and that people who are ideologically motivated are disinclined to look at evidence and say, you know what, we had it wrong and are more inclined to look at their shortcomings and failures and say, we had the mix wrong there, but what we need to do is redouble our efforts. Well, Jack, once again, you have set me up perfectly to introduce the topic for our In the Weeds segment, and that's where you and I go forth and we chat about something. Usually it's something of interest to me, and that's absolutely the case with this topic. So we've been talking about sort of, you know, like how similar the AI frenzy is to other other previous debates about new technologies in schools. Well, one thing that does feel different about this moment in time is that we're seeing a fairly sharp rightward turn among our tech visionaries. And is this something that we should be worried about? So we're going to be talking about that in the weeds. And if this interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. If you just throw a few dollars our way each month, you get a custom reading list, you get to what else? You get to join us in the weeds. Um, I'm I'm done promoting the book because Jack. Last time you said that it was has been. It oh, you was can old. keep promoting it. It's just, I just don't know how new it is. Yeah, it's, it's, we just need it's to strike new. that adjective. And Jack, I have some great news for you. I know that your least favorite part of doing these episodes is where I tell you, you have to put on your pitch man hat. You have to try to get our audience to do something. So I (laughs) am going to bring in your friend, AI Jack, to free you up from the drudgery. And and, I mean, who knows? I guess you'll probably have time to write another book. (laughs) So instead of me saying all the things I usually say, you're going to have a strike breaker come in and do a kind of digital version of this where he'll probably just echo whatever you want him to say. That would be correct. AI Jack, take it away. And if parting with your hard-earned Bitcoin is in your jam, there are lots of other ways for you to support the show. Share it with your friends, human or otherwise. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And leave us a rating, five stars please, that helps people find the show, enabling Have You Heard to grow, and ultimately take over the world. Get it? AI Jack is making a joke about global domination. Thank you for that, AI Jack. On behalf of the entire Have You Heard team, human and otherwise, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. See you in a couple weeks. (laughs) 